Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to the craziest playoff night in NBA history, in my opinion. And Cody, I'm not saying there weren't some great triple headers in an afternoon one day years ago. Certainly the NBA on NBC. I can think of those 1995 playoffs with the Rockets coming back against the Jazz and buzzer beaters and the Sonics are playing and the Lakers are playing and Marv Albert's calling games. But last night, uh, I think last night was the first time it ever felt like March Madness, where it was just by the time we got to the end of the night, I had completely forgotten that the Knicks advanced to the semifinals and apparently will be hosting game one in Madison Square Garden. Um, we, we, I've gotten multiple messages about you, so let's just start the show with as much mourning as you need to have. How, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? We're going to be working through some stuff today, Ben. <laughs> I legitimately don't know how I feel right now. Like, I honestly just feel like in awe. Like, I don't quite know what I watched. Like, I, I still remember perfectly last night, the last possession where Grayson Allen dribbles out the clock and I, I was just standing with like, I, I must've stood for like five minutes, just like looking at the TV, like that, that's it. That's, that's the end of the game. I, I genuinely don't know, Ben, like, I don't know how to process this. Like I, I don't What, what specifically do you want me to talk about, Ben? There's so many entry points into this that I, I, I can't, I can't even handle it right now. Well, I think it's, I think it's time that we unpack your, your deep relationship with fandom and uh, see how that's going. And while you think about that, I just want to make a point about this last play. Grayson Allen's getting a lot of heat for, you know, not shooting and, and Euro-stepping with no time left on the clock. But in rewatching the play, something jumped out to me from a, like a deep basketball truism standpoint. Chris Middleton caught it with a couple seconds left. Chris Middleton uh, is, a, is a great isolation scorer. He's the Bucks' best tough shot maker. He's made a number of big shots in his career. And he caught it and was doubled. And he, I'm pretty sure, looked over to his right and saw Grayson Allen and saw open teammates on the right side of the court. And he said to himself, I'm not passing to that guy because I'm going to be the one to take this shot with three seconds left. And then, Cody, he changed his mind with two seconds left. That, to me, was the bigger part of that possession. Yes, of course, you got to float it or take a pull-up with one second left instead of Euro-stepping. But the there's almost like sort of unwritten rules of basketball. And if you're going to go take that last shot with three seconds, you either have to hit the wide open man and set everything up perfectly, or you have to live with the fact that you put it on the floor and you're going to take your covered pull-up and he kind of did neither, and I, I thought that blew the whole thing up. It's kind of like making a cut. Like, if you're going to cut, you have to cut. You can't fake yeah, out your you can't teammate stop. before the yeah, cut. Yeah. So there was, in the post-game press conference, Ben, I don't know if you saw this, but Eric Name of The Athletic asked Giannis at the podium, he's like, do you consider this season to be a failure now? And I'm going to summarize I'm pretty close to what Giannis said. I think this is a really great response. So Giannis says something. After a really exaggerated, deep sigh, which I felt in my heart and my soul. It was the greatest sigh possibly in media history. He says back to Eric, do you get a promotion every year? No. Every year you work, you work towards a goal, which is to get a promotion, take care of your family. It's not failure. It steps towards success. Michael Jordan played 15 years and won six championships. The other nine years were a failure. That's what you're telling me. 
that's essentially what Giannis responds to him. And that, Ben, this is kind of what I've been mulling about these last couple of days. This gross, zero-sum take that we have with sports, where it's like, if I'm second place or third place in MVP, everyone just hates me. If I lose in the playoffs and don't win the championship, it's an abject failure and we need to blow everything up. Ben, here's the key takeaway from yesterday. I love this Bucks team to absolute death. I love being a fan of them right now. I've been loving cheering for them for the last few years. If I were to make some kind of a top favorite Bucks list of all time, multiple of them would be on it. Multiple of them. They're just a great collection of dudes that just seem like they're really fun to play with. They seem like they really enjoy playing with each other. They got a championship at 21. Ben, that's really cool. And if we could get like Marcus Johnson and Paul Pressey on this team, we have just like the all-time Bucks vibes all of a sudden. You know what I'm saying? So like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm like very disappointed. And it's it's not disappointment in the sense that I'm just like angry. I'm not angry at the Bucks. Like the, if anyone's going to be angry, like, they have the right to feel whatever they want to feel. I'm just disappointed because I just, like, I respect these guys so much, and I love cheering for them so much, and this is probably the most disappointed I've ever felt, just because I'm like, yeah, I think they can win the championship this year, but, like, man, I don't know. I feel like it's a really nuanced conversation that's, like, uh, the razor-thin line between the constant need for, uh, for, for victory and, like, being able to talk critically about what went wrong and what could go better in the future. It's like when the Spurs came back in 2014 and Greg Popovich is like, I made us watch Game 6 and Game 7 again, and it was painful. And, you know, I don't know. That's kind of where I'm processing all of this. I love this team so much, and I'm just disappointed that I don't get to watch them anymore and that they don't get to have another shot at the championship. But I don't know. that th- Those are the thoughts that are going through my head right now. Fandom, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, this is a, this is a safe space for Cody. Send him your your best wishes. I want to take that and spin off another kind of meta thought before we talk maybe a little bit about the Heat. The Heat are going to play the Knicks. I want to talk about that series. Three of the series are set. We also have the the best first round series I think I've ever seen in my life going on between the Kings and the Warriors. That that series alone feels like it could be an NBA Finals for the back and forth, the tactics, the offense. We'll get to all that in a second. But based on what you just said, Cody, the big takeaway for me this morning was how obsessed we've become with the negative and criticism as a basketball culture. And it's not just Twitter. It's everywhere. It's television. It's message boards. It's social media. Yes, of course, having a horrible upset, you know, this, where did this come from? You lose in five games. Of course, that's tough to swallow and a big disappointment, especially when you compare it to other historical teams and players that have been one seeds and multiple time MVPs. Of course, of course, that's just uh, a historical fact when you compare it to those things. But for me, I spent a lot of the night talking about Miami with people. Um, There was a lot of Jimmy Butler analysis going on in my head and the place where maybe I want to go when we talk about how they match up with New York and but the just chew on this ladies and gentlemen the Knicks or the Heat are going to be in the Eastern Conference Finals in the year 2023 Eric Spolstra a coaching masterclass he did some things down the stretch his teams are so well prepared he's just an all-timer on the sidelines to me and that was what was in my head. And I woke up today and like every story like popping up on my phone and my internet browser, every little ad from last night's or this morning's talking head show is about how the Bucks stink and Giannis did this and how big was this choke and the big word that everyone keeps using 
not just about uh, the question asked in the press conference is like fail. Is it, is it a catastrophic failure? Is it a cataclysmic failure? Uh, you know, what level of failure, what, what color failure is it? Is it an orange alert failure, a red alert failure? To me, we've, we've really lost the thread a little bit. If that's all we're focusing on. Sure. I think Giannis is, you know, one of the greatest players ever. And so anytime a season ends for a great player ever, a lot of people keep trying to contextualize the legacy and the arc of that career. And that's understandable. And the Bucs, of course, have been a championship contending team for what, five, five postseasons basically in a row. And sometimes they've won a title and sometimes they've had crazy endings and they've had, they've had upsets and things like that. So I, I get contextualizing that. But Giannis mentioned Michael Jordan in his answer. And to me, the best part of that was like, even if you're going to focus on the Bucks and Giannis, um, wait until 8, 10, 12 seasons have gone by to really understand like what it means. Okay, four conference finals, two finals, and then that has a different thing than just reacting in the moment and being negative. Whereas, let's flip to the positive. Jimmy Butler, um, we got to talk about him. I want to talk about Spolstra. Let's just start with the fact that the Heat shot 45% from three in an NBA playoff series. I, I was trying to look up really quickly before we, we recorded. Has that ever happened? That might be the best shooting series given the volume of threes that teams are taking right now and given the opposing defense across from them, the Bucks with their twin towers. Although, although to get back to the Giannis thing really quickly, just a reminder, Giannis played two games and 10 minutes worth of basketball in this series. Did he even play 90 minutes in the series? It's, it's just, he played 10 minutes in the game. He was injured and then he came back. We'll, we'll get our stats team on that. But, um, the shooting performance from the heat, it really felt like I was watching a a 15 seed trying to take out a two seed in March madness. And these two crazy hectic games, they did the same thing last year in the playoffs with the Celtics. They just get these crazy hectic games down the stretch and they seem to thrive under chaos at the end of games and putting teams in a psychological torture chamber, trying to create turnovers, get runouts, get cheap baskets. It's incredible to watch. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I'm going to start with the Bucks here and I'm going to use it to transition into saying really nice things about the Heat because Ben... At the end of the day, I also love basketball, and I have to also admit, like some of those plays, the lob finish from Jimmy Butler at the end of regulation, I don't care if there was a push-off. That was sick. That was an awesome basket. That was just a moment that's going to live in playoff history, and I'm like, okay, that, that was pretty cool. That's a way to send it to overtime. But something that I was thinking about during that fourth quarter is you and I, throughout this entire season, we've spent so much time talking about sort of this offensive revolution that's going on. We even had an episode that was basically like, has the offense in the league overtaken the Warriors? 
obviously right now the Warriors are looking pretty solid in the playoffs, but like that was a legit conversation we had. And I couldn't help but think when the Bucks were three for 18 from the field in the fourth, when I started spamming our, our thinking basketball channel with plays of isolation from Giannis after isolation, trying to get a, a ball screen that Bam just would not switch off. And I kept thinking like this offense is just behind everything that we saw. Right? Like everything the Bucks are doing, like this is just against, this is contrary to everything that we know about offense in, the tw- in, in 2023. But I don't want to put all the blame on the Bucks because the defense for the Heat, like you said, Eric Spolster coached the hell out of this team on defense. Like the amount of like of, of overloading flooding certain sides. There's a couple possessions where Giannis had the ball kind of in the short corner. All five Heat defenders were at like the middle line or over. All five of them were right there. They would send a double team. I think he tried to kick it out that one play. Uh, Bam gets his hand down. Jimmy streaks out for a layup. Another one, just Jimmy Butler's incredible intensity. I forgot who it was. It's, I think it was Pat Connaughton maybe. Gets a jump shot at the top of the, the perimeter. Jimmy comes out of nowhere, swats it right? Brings it down for a transition dunk. So you just have these individual incredible defensive performances from them and the fact that all of them are just playing on a string defensively. And that was really my key takeaway. The shooting was great, but their defense was so committed and just incredible to watch. To me, that was it. It's it's one of the indicators of good coaching on that side of the ball is that everyone's coordinated regardless of really who they are. So you have Kevin Love in the game and you give away some defense in theory when he's in the game for his offense and stretch shooting and and, and that mattered. Um, but he's always in the perfect position. Max Struess is in the perfect position. Vincent and Butler are roaming and causing chaos. And then the guy who, yeah, you look at the box score. This was one of those games, Cody, where the game was so intense and the evening was so intense going back and forth between the two games at the same time and the Warriors and the and it was just like I looked at the box score at the end of the game and I went Giannis had 38 points and 20 rebounds in this game I am telling you I have multiple plays and notes where I'm like Bam Adebayo being able to keep Giannis in front of him physically and guard him one-on-one is a difference maker in this game. And yes, Milwaukee still ends with a 114 offensive rating specifically in this game, excuse me, in the series. They end up with a 114 offensive rating, which is solid. But to your point, it's not necessarily set up to win with great offense. And therefore, the Bucks needed that elite defensive sort of performance that we've seen from them in the past. They didn't get it in large part because of Miami's freakishly outlying shooting, making 45% of their threes. But in addition to Bam on that end defensively, the other thing that happened at the end of the game was the Heat really opened up the paint. Because if you make Bam the playmaker at the top of the key or out near the three-point line, you pull out whoever is on him. You pull Giannis or Brooke Lopez as the big man out of the paint. And the Heat had a number of key baskets on back cuts or just little curl actions or seals where that, that size that we've associated with Milwaukee, that twin tower shot blocking, wasn't in the lane. I just thought that was a, an incredible little adjustment down the stretch. And Kevin Love is part of that because Kevin Love's shooting when you play. So you have Bam with the ball. And then Kevin Love popping and spacing to the three-point line and say whatever you will about Kevin Love throughout his career 
and right now at 34, 35 years old or whatever, the guy can shoot the ball really, really well. And he's been in enough situations where he can still make big shots regardless of what's happening with the rest of his skills physically, with his endurance, with his quickness, his recovery. You just He was a guy I felt in this game and down the stretch of this series when he had a big shot and he's up faking to get into his shot. He's not afraid of the moment. He's not concerned. Like that thing's going up and you had confidence it was going in. The combination of all that down the stretch really was just enough. And it was a five-game series, but it was a razor-thin series. Because think about the last two games, Milwaukee having big leads at the end of the game and Miami coming back and just winning on just both games on a knife's edge um, could very easily be 3-2 Milwaukee with two games you know, to, to go and, and potential game seven at home. So just just an incredible upset to me. Given all the situational context, I think it has a great argument for the biggest upset in NBA history. Uh, you you can you can have that discourse. I, <laughs> that that hurts to hear say out loud. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something nice about the the Heat instead. Something that that you talk about Bam Adebayo's ability to defend Giannis one on one, right? And that's obviously true. Bam Adebayo is a tremendous defensive player. But something else again, Jimmy Butler. I just talked about him flying around the court. But a couple of those love lineups, Ben, where the Heat had Kevin Love at the five. Jimmy Butler was in at the four, and then the Bucks were running like like Giannis was on the bench, but they still had a double big lineup with Portis and, and Brooke Lopez being out there. Love is on Portis. Ben, who's guarding Brooke Lopez? Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Butler. So you're able to space out with a five-out lineup as the Heat with Kevin Love being out there, and here's Jimmy Butler muscling up Brooke Lopez in the paint for stretches of the game. And when you have that kind of defensive flexibility, like that just completely nullified the weakness of having somebody like Kevin Love at at the five so man that's that's honestly just unbelievable the flexibility that they were able to bring i also feel bad now i feel like i just shut down your your conversation completely about the biggest upsets in history what other upsets in nba history would even like would compete with this what in your mind were you thinking about when you said that it's okay we're we're (laughs) we're all pulling for you on this one and uh i understand i think the 94 sonics even though it was a five-game series with with the Nuggets, that was enormous, a 2-0 lead, and and then the comeback. And then I would say the 2007 Mavs or the other one. That's an interesting one because the Warriors matched up so well with the Mavs in the regular season, and then they also had Don Nelson, who used to coach the Mavs. It was a six-game series. Baron Davis played out of his mind. Some of it is maybe... Baron Davis is underrated through the peak of his career because of injuries. E- either way, I think those are the those are the big candidates. And this one, to me, um, just incredible. And your point is the exact same thing down the stretch of Game 4, where I think Bam was out. Did he foul out? I can't remember. But he was out of the lineup down the stretch. And Butler's guarding Brooke Lopez. And it's one of those things where you look at the box score and I think Brooke Lopez had 35 points in that game or something. But again, those possessions down the stretch with Butler on him, you don't give up anything. This is a great transition to looking forward with the Knicks because the last time they played, Butler did not guard the other team's center. Butler guarded Jalen Brunson, who is the Knicks point guard. (laughs) So 
you have this versatile chess piece. And I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we did our defensive awards, one of our favorite episodes of the year. I don't want to make it sound like Jimmy Butler is the most versatile, switchable, like he just locks you down. But he's good enough to have that versatility. He can guard Brooke Lopez and he can guard Jalen Brunson. And Eric Spolstra is crafty enough to move the pieces around and bend with the series as need be. So looking forward to this next round, this this rehashing of an old classic rivalry from the 90s and early 2000s. Butler will probably, I assume, start on Brunson, which is where they left off the last time they played. And we'll kind of see what happens from there. If he doesn't start on him, it's a card that I look for Miami to play. And I do think this series is probably going to look fundamentally different for both teams than their first round series looked. One, Miami's not going to make 45 or 46% of their threes, even if they get better shots. It's just, it's not going to happen. Um, Two, the Knicks and the success they had against Cleveland. um, First of all, Cleveland's a really good defensive team. Knicks only had like a 109 or 110 offensive rating in that series. So there was a lot of defensive, you know, talent on the court and then trying to find a way to grind enough points to win. Well, Cody, who do you think had the worst true shooting percentage of any team in the first round? Uh, Cavaliers? Very close. It was the New York Knicks. The Knicks had the worst true shooting percentage, but they crushed Cleveland on the offensive glass, and that was because the Cavs made some tactical decisions. We'll have a video out on this on the NBA app uh, maybe tomorrow, um, but it's on the Knicks' offensive rebounding and their dominant offensive rebounding and how Cleveland basically made a trade-off by saying, we're going to help Donovan Mitchell. We're going to help Darius Garland at the point of attack if they're matched up with Brunson, if they're involved in the pick and roll, if there's a guard guard pick and roll where both Garland and Mitchell are involved in the pick and roll, the way the Cavs covered that up is they brought an extra big man into the action. So they would pre-rotate or overload the side with Jared Allen, with Evan Mobley, whoever was near the basket to provide some additional help on Jalen Brunson. The sacrifice that that creates, the trade-off, is that no one is guarding Mitchell Robinson on the backside of the play. No one is there to box him out. And so no matter how well Cleveland rotated after they tried to help on that point of attack with Brunson, that still meant like Darius Garland or Isaac Okoro or somebody small was trying to come in from the backside and contest rebounds with Mitchell Robinson. Not a good idea. Mitchell Robinson is an incredibly good offensive rebounder. And in fact... That weak side action, I think we mentioned it last episode, the Knicks crashing from the corner, Obi Toppin, Josh Hart, also Mitchell Robinson. Like That combination, they grabbed 35% of the available misses in the series, by far the highest number of any playoff team. And I just assume if Miami can control the point of attack differently, the Knicks offense is going to look different. On the other side, the way the Heat try to attack, it's just to me, it's just going to be a very different looking series and matchup than what we just saw. 
I think it's going to be really hard because I don't know what I'm gleaning from the the earlier matchups. I think they matched up most recently uh, back in March. And if, if I remember correctly, there were possessions where like Bam is guarding RJ Barrett. And like you said, Jimmy Butler's on Jalen Brunson. I don't know if that's going to work out because like we were just talking about, like you just said, Mitchell Robinson has been grabbing a ton of offensive rebounds. It feels like uh, it, it feels like Bam's going to have to be on him unless do you see a world where Kevin Love actually gets a good amount of minutes and he's the one that ends up on Mitchell Robinson is kind of just like this this strong body that's just going to try and keep him off the glass to kind of let Bam roam, not roam around, but stay on the perimeter where he's maybe stronger. Do you think that's going to be something we see more of? Well, I think that could work in a vacuum. Kevin Love boxing out Mitchell Robinson. I think the bigger issue is, do you bring... Let, let's start with the Knicks. The Knicks switched in this series from having Mitchell Robinson set screens 40 feet away for Jalen Brunson to having a guard set a screen so Mitchell Robinson can stay near the baseline, near the basket, in the dunker spot, on the low block, and grab rebounds or lobs. So if the Knicks come up with a big like Robinson and set the screen, Isaiah Hartenstein plays the same role, then Bam Adebayo, in theory, can use that mobility, that versatility. He can either switch onto Brunson. They'll probably be okay with that. He can play at the level. There's a lot of different coverages that Miami could run there that involve Bam and another good defender like Gabe Vincent. That's another huge shift. Instead of attacking Garland or Donovan Mitchell, Gabe Vincent's a really stout defender in these situations. So Butler, Vincent, Bam, we saw what they did to Trey Young last year at the point of attack. That could really limit the Knicks there. So if Miami commits resources, then does that free up offensive rebounding again? Maybe, I don't know. Or... Maybe the Heat don't have to commit that many resources. Maybe the Knicks are running more small, small pick and roll. That keeps Ban closer to the basket. I mean, there's just so many permutations about how this could shake out. The thing that I feel confident in saying is the series will look a little different than what we just saw from these teams in the first two rounds. And in addition to that, um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of potential for this to, these to be very close games. Even even with the Heat not shooting well and things like that, not having home court, just because I, they played two or three times in March. I think Randall had the right. Randall had the buzzer beater game, and then they had yeah. two more games, and all the games were really close. Do you have Do you have that in front of you by chance? The, the either way, these teams have matched up recently, and a lot of the quarters have been close. The shot quality has been tough to come by. Um, it's just hard for me to immediately jump out and say like. One team has a huge advantage. I, I, I do think it's going to look different. I think it's going to be competitive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One thing that I'm going to keep my eye on, and a player that I, we cannot sing his praises enough from the Knicks. I think R.J. Barrett. I think I said a revelation last time. He he's just in, he's been fantastic. His driving game, the fact that he's focusing on that. Some of the passes he made, Ben. He had a skip pass. He had a skip pass in this most recent Cavs game. That was just like, 
RJ Barrett, you you can pass like that. I think he even had another lob. He threw a lob pass to Mitchell Robinson. I think Mitch maybe maybe bobbled it a little bit, but I'm like, okay, this guy's coming into his own. But the one thing that we didn't see from him in the Cavs series, just because of the nature of the way that the Cavaliers are constructed, is RJ Barrett having to defend players one-on-one, point of attack, whatever else. And it feels like he's the most natural guy that the Knicks are going to be able to use on Jimmy Butler. Do you think that's who's going to be tasked with the Jimmy Butler assignment? Do you think that's a a Julius Randle thing? Obviously, it's going to be a defense by committee sort of thing. But who who on the Knicks do you feel is going to draw that Jimmy Butler assignment? Yeah, it'll it'll I mean, it could be it could be Barrett. It could be Josh Hart. It could I think they have a lot of bodies to throw at him, which makes it interesting. I also think the Knicks have more cards to play. Julius Randle and Quentin Grimes were the stars of the first quarter the last time they matched up. I just rewatched that game this morning. And it's like they've been out or injured at the end of this series. Obi Toppin was great in game five yesterday for the Knicks closing out the Cavs. But Randall can create matchup problems. Like Miami was going to hard double and pre-double Randall in the first quarter of their last game. That can create offense for the Knicks. If Quentin Grimes comes back and he's healthy, he gives you another one of these wing defenders who can attack second side action. So I think the Knicks have plenty of cards to play in this series. And and if if you're a New York fan right now and you got home court, you're probably feeling pretty good. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the Heat, they're just so well coached. I wonder when you get down to like the coaching matchup, what else you can squeeze, you know, can you squeeze all the value out of Duncan Robinson and Kyle Lowry and Caleb Martin, in addition to Struz continuing to play well, Gabe Vincent continuing to play well. And then maybe the biggest question is how many Jimmy Butler games can you get? Because he now has a history. I think he has more 40-point games in the playoffs than in the regular season. Jimmy Butler has not had a 40-point game in the regular season, I want to say since he played for Chicago. Just just chew on that for a second. <laughs> so it's like the number of explosive individual playoff games he's had is absolutely enormous. And then, of course, how, how long can you sustain that over the course of a five or six or even seven game series? Okay, yeah, go ahead. I, I just want I have a I have a Jimmy Butler thing I want to talk about. I want to stick on Jimmy Butler for a second. We haven't talked about Jimmy Butler enough. Um, a stat that I just looked at. I was looking back at one of the uh, the March matchups. I think it was the one on March third when the Heat were matching up against the Knicks. During that game, Jimmy Butler drew twelve fouls against the Knicks drew 12 fouls which if you like extrapolate that to like per 100 possessions that would be like the most of any player throughout the entire season like it's an incredible amount of fouls that he drew and I I don't know I think that bodes well because if Jimmy Butler's able to be strong and drive in and get to the line a lot he's a fantastic free throw shooter as we've seen but here's what I ultimately want to ask you Ben because you you and I we just did this whole historical thing talking about the, the goat peaks we talked about a bunch of playoff series is can you think of any player that has I, I Ben, I don't even know how to talk about how good Jimmy Butler is. Because the player Jimmy Butler is is in the regular season versus what we see in the playoffs. Is there a player that has a wider gap in NBA history that comes to mind to you? Well, not for the ceiling, probably. Like for the one game ceiling. I, I think that's where it really stands out. And it it 
his stylistically makes it tricky to evaluate anyway, like the way he plays, the amount of fouls he draws. When he has these big games, he takes a disproportionate number of free throws. Like if you look at his 40-point games in the playoffs, he averages like 14 or 15 free throw attempts a game, which is a huge shift. And then also looking at other big 40-point games, it's more than most, if not all of those guys. Even free throw guys like James Harden, if you go look at his 40-point playoff games, doesn't average as many free throws as Jimmy Butler. So you have someone who, in today's day and age, is not a three-point shooter, who somehow wills the ball into the basket from three-point land. I mean, he made one shot last night where it looked like he was passing it to the basket. It was late in the fourth quarter, one of the threes he hit. And it, he just like reluctantly threw it at the basket. I think he sprinted after it like he missed it. And it just went in like a line drive. And he just has these games where he's like, I'm going to hit five of seven threes tonight, even though I'm a 30% three-point shooter over very, very, very large sustainable samples. So I think with him, it's these incredible individual game highs, which let's be clear, feeling feeling really, really impressive because he does so many things out there. Defense, steals, saving the ball, extra pass, offensive rebound when he needs to. And I think the buzzer beater last night to force overtime is like the jimmiest of Jimmy plays because he is a guy who gets buckets and free throws repeatedly in playoff settings by finding little moments to get a seal near the basket, clear out the other side on his opposite shoulder, and then like a tight end or something in football, I don't know, like a like a soccer forward sizing up a header. He just holds that defender on his shoulder for as long as possible, creates the space, then goes up and gets the ball and finishes, you know, a little lob or something two feet from the hoop. So I do think the the difference between the normal game and the ceiling is probably the biggest of anyone that I can think of off the top of my head. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely tend Let, to agree with that. Now, I'm sorry, I cut you off earlier. What were you? What do you want to transition to? I want to transition to the uh, other series that is set, which I I can't even figure figure out right now. It's in the Western Conference. It's between the Denver Nuggets and the Phoenix Suns. We've been looking forward to this series. It's a weird series in the sense that Phoenix is such a new team. There's just no, there's no, you can't like go watch film and there's really no large body of stats. You just have to continue to say, look at the Clippers series, which is a really weird series by itself and go, okay, how do I think the Suns are going to attack the Nuggets? How are the Nuggets going to try to defend the Suns? Um, and then does this new Nuggets team have a defensive weaknesses or tendencies in general and B particular points that the nuggets can try to puncture and strain in the defense, given what we've seen in the limited games they played. Uh, I'll, I'll throw you the floor, but I'm really looking forward to this series. And my, my instinct is, well, actually I have no idea. I don't know. What do you think? I, I think what's really interesting is we have, both of these teams in the first round played a team that is very different from the team that they're just about to match up with, right? So if we start with the Nuggets, for instance, playing against the Timberwolves, Anthony Edwards, (laughs) 
if we make a list of just like the greatest players right now in the in the league right now, just getting to the basket, just exploding by guys. I mean, from what we've seen with Ja, sometimes I think like Ja Morant's decision making when it comes to just like launching himself into human beings, that makes me a little bit more worried. Anthony Edwards is stronger. He seems a little bit more controlled with his with his semi-chaotic types of drives. And the Suns just do not have that. They do not have guys that are just going to explode through defense for a finish. I think Devin Booker's finishing ability and driving ability is better than I've seen in in previous seasons. But Anthony Edwards is a whole other animal. I also thought, you know, there again, on on social media, I saw some plays about uh, Jokic cooking Rudy Gobert. He obviously had that beautiful pirouette shot. I don't even remember which game it was. That goes around social media. Overall, I thought Rudy Gobert did a solid job on Nikola Jokic. I did. But DeAndre Ayton, I know historically, he's been solid playing Jokic, but he's a very different type of defensive player than uh, Gobert is. Okay, so on the other side, then, the the Let's, the let's actually, Suns, let's, let's stop right there and just jump okay. in. Because okay. Gobert, in the last game of the series, I don't remember, uh, it's probably the worst shooting game of his season, if not his career. I don't remember ever seeing... Uh, Nikola Jokic go 8 of 29 in a game. 8 of 29. And he's been so good on two-pointers, shooting something like 68% on two-point shots for the entire season that he actually made uh, a couple threes in this. So he was 5 of 21 on his three-pointers, Cody. He, I mean, his two-point shots. He shot under 25% from two. So the way the Wolves defend the athletes they have and then Jokic, uh, excuse me, Gobert's size against him. To your point, I expect a different looking series for Jokic and for some of the Nuggets offense going forward, even though the competition level is jumping up. So it's, it's just really interesting. It's the same thing that you said with the Clippers. The Clippers are essentially at times playing like five guards out there, just very extreme styles of basketball with all the injuries that they had. Give them credit. Uh, they, they scrapped. They, I mean, Russell Westbrook had an amazing series for where he is in his career, just, just fantastic series. And yet, when we go to play the Nuggets, everything is going to look different on both sides of the ball, I think, for both teams, despite eight in size. Um, Keep going. You you were going to switch to the other side, but I just want to jump in there and and sort of emphasize how different I think this is going to be. Let me throw a stat at you, Ben. This is fun. This is a good one. I just pulled up every Nikola Jokic playoff game in his career ranked by two-point percentage. Okay? His second worst game in his playoff career was second worst was in 2020 in the bubble. It was against the Lakers. Okay? He shot 40% from two. This last game against the Timberwolves, he shot 24% from two. All right, so there's a 16 percentage point difference between this one and that. Like, this is by far the worst two-point shooting game we've ever seen from Jokic. So I wanted to add some more uh, flavor to that one. But going over to the other side, Ben, I think the question that I actually have for you, uh, that I just, you know, we've watched a lot of the Nuggets through the year. I feel like we've analyzed them a lot. We know who the, the Nuggets basically are. But the Suns, like you said, they're a pretty new team. Kevin Durant's only played with them for, what, like 12 games at this point? 13 games? Something in that range, right? What do you feel like you've learned about the Phoenix Suns based on their performance against the Clippers in the first round? That they will take a lot of two-point shots. That, that was the sort of biggest takeaway for me 
is that while all of those guys can make threes, they don't get to the basket a ton anymore. And so even Aiton, I mean, Aiton's a great mid-range shooter. The four of them will just 10 to 20 feet. They will just live in that range. And it's, and it's going to be an interesting math thing because if the possessions look different, meaning let's say you have a pick and roll and Jokic wants to come out and hedge. Now you have two on the ball. Now you're in recovery mode. Maybe the ball gets swung and you get a lot more threes than you did in the prior series. But the the Suns, the, the first big thing I learned was like all four of those guys will spam their mid-range shots to a comical point where you're playing in 2023 and you're like, oh, the Suns shot 15 three-pointers in the whole game because they, they just wanted to take like 52s and they'll make them at a very high percentage. But I am interested in the math on that. They had a 125 offensive rating in this series against the Clippers. That's great. On the other hand, they were playing a team of guards and the Clippers were very depleted and there weren't always big men out there. And it did felt like Phoenix shot very well from two. So as I said, I think we could see a lot more three-point attempts from them in this series based on the defensive coverages. But that was the absolute first thing that I took away. The second thing that I took away is there's still kind of learning and working together. And Monty Williams, to me, has been a coach for a while now who can put in some great systemic structure, but he's not necessarily going to adapt and change and go crazy and do totally different things like we just talked about with Eric Spolstra. And so I wonder if there you get to game two or game three of this series, if there's an adjustment somewhere, if the Suns, given their sort of newness and, and lack of experience together, have a lot of cards that they can go to other than just falling back on the brilliance of say like, well, just isolate Kevin Durant. We gotta we gotta create a matchup and post up Kevin Durant. And the of course the the big money question in the series is does that create enough offensive efficiency to outscore whatever you're doing with with Denver's offense on the other end? You know, Jamal Murray, Devin Booker, the Kentucky guys might be the difference makers at the end of the day based on how they shoot and sort of how big of a role they have in each team's offense. Yeah, and Devin Booker, I mean, I, I think he seems like he's been their best offensive player during the playoffs. I mean, the, the the heater that he's on right now, the tough shots that he's taking and making, I am interested to see how far that goes. And I think a big conversation, they came up a lot definitely in the broadcasts. I feel like Stan Van Gundy talked a lot about it, was the Clippers running their drop defense. And I feel like I saw a lot of Plumley. I saw a lot of Zubots dropping back. And the Suns were able to get to their spots and make some shots. And, you know, we saw Chris Paul maybe struggle to make a couple of those shots in a few of those games. He was able to come back and make those shots well. And I think if you're dropping back and all four of the guys are hitting the mid-range jumpers, it's going to be over. So I guess that's one adjustment I'm interested in is do you think that uh, do you think the Nuggets are going to try and run a drop coverage with Jokic or are they going to try and put him out on the perimeter or do you think they're going to really try and ramp up and try some kind of radical version of their shift defense that you talked about uh, with them during this series? Yeah, I think when it comes to doubling and scrambling and rotating, we may get that late in games or later in the series, depending on what unfolds in game one or game two. It's just one of those series where it feels like we have a lot of data, 
because of the history of these teams and attacking Jokic and Chris Paul and Booker cooking in the mid-range a couple years ago. But as an analyst, I feel like we have almost no data. And so we're going to get a lot coming out of game one. My assumption is you actually won't see a drop to start. I think you'll see Jokic up at the level or hedging. They've done that quite a bit. Um, I think it's got to be an enormous series for Aaron Gordon defensively. Guys like Bruce Brown, these are the guys that are going to be bothering and disrupting Durant while also needing the bodies to stay connected and and stay with Booker because he's been huge. Chris Paul's age is always a thing because, you know, maybe one day you get two or three awesome-looking games of Chris Paul. If those generate wins, I think that spikes your win probability for the series. If Paul struggles to recover or have more than one big game, if his shot is off, et cetera, et cetera, that could swing things. It's just a really, really fascinating series with potentially two of the best playoff offenses sitting there in the whole tournament. Let me throw some stats back at you. In the first round, if you use basketball references measure of where shots are from the play-by-play, changes a little bit. People have asked, like, it's a little different depending on whether you look at NBA.com or playbypleystats.com, but we'll work with basketball reference here. Phoenix took the fewest shots at the rim in the first round. 13% of their shots came at the rim. For comparison, the Knicks, because of all that offensive rebounding, almost 30% of their shots came at the rim. Phoenix also took the fewest three-pointers of any team in the first round by far. So for comparison, the league average is almost 40% of your field goal attempts coming from three. The Warriors were up at 46% after the first five games of their series. The Suns were last in the first round with just 27% of their shots coming from three. So Will something like that, maybe not as extreme, continue because of the skill set and the inherent strengths of these guys? To your point, Devin Booker has been phenomenal. Can he continue to shoot like this? Can he continue to create these advantages and stress the defense? I think he's done a great job in transition and early offense, getting looks and scoring at really high efficiency. Can can the Nuggets find a way to take that away a little bit? Um, Or... Is it the kind of thing where different series, style makes the fight, they, they start attacking Jokic, and all of a sudden your shot profile looks different, who you're running offense through looks different? I don't know. I'm literally thinking all of this through out loud because even though we've had this series in the back of our minds for like a month or however long it's been since the bracket, Cody, I'm still recovering from yesterday because uh, we've got, you know, a few minutes left in the show. I don't even know if we want to mention what's going on in Golden State or just save it for the next episode. But we got the Lakers, Grizzlies. Oh, it's, it's it's so much. It's it's spectacular. Let me let me ask you a question. This this feels a good question. This feels a good radio show question, Ben. So get right get ready here. Get ready for this one. So the both the Nuggets and the Suns just won a five game series, but it felt like both of them were at times a little bit more competitive than we expected. But at the end of the day, I think especially the last couple games of the games of the Timberwolves, they felt a little better than a typical eighth seed. But on the other side, the Clippers, uh, just because of the injuries to Kawhi and PG, felt a little worse than the typical fifth seed. So in terms of like both of those games, both of those series being a little bit more competitive, where would you like 
slide the scale in terms of like, I'm concerned about the team that won versus I think these lower seeded teams were playing out of their mind. Wow. That's a hard question. I, I think it would be a little bit more for Phoenix. I don't know if you got that vibe watching that series, but it's, it's, it's hard to really know in the sense that the Clippers were just such a unique amoeba in that series. So on one hand, it feels a little bit underwhelming. You have this team that should be better. Um, I think I think it's safe to say they would have been the favorite, both in Vegas and in terms of like expert picks around the basketball sphere. If the Clippers were healthy, I think the Suns would have been the favorite. And the Clippers were not only down Paul George for the entire series, but they were down... Kawhi Leonard for basically most of the series and to your point even though it was a five game series it was really competitive it was really scrappy the Clippers were clearly able to find success in places and despite the Suns seemingly doing what they want and shooting so well you have that math problem of taking all these mid-rangers where it's like man you guys played great but also it didn't really feel like you played great even though you're the better team and the better seed and the other team was injured so you know I'm answering your question in the sense that it felt like Phoenix to me but I also don't know what to make of that that might mean nothing going into this series every series in these playoffs Cody might be like a fresh reset where we just have to analyze the the style makes the fight in front of you because the parody is so off the wall right now I think that's a great way to put it because we talked about it last episode in terms of like watching the Warriors and Kings play each other and then you go and watch the the Knicks and the Cavs play each other. Like it doesn't even look like the same century of basketball, right? And these are just literally on like opposite sides of here. I think the thing for the Suns, and I'm not the first person to say this. I've heard this a lot, but the fact that Kevin Durant averaged 44 minutes a game that series, the fact that Devin Booker, you know, he's younger. I think 26-year-old, you can probably get away with averaging 43 minutes per game. Kevin Durant's 34 years old. Kevin Durant has a history now of some injuries, right? Chris Paul's averaging 39 minutes a game. I don't know, man. The playoffs are just going to keep getting rougher, and they're going to keep dragging on more and more. That makes me really nervous. Does that mean that I think the Suns are, uh, are the underdogs in this series? I don't know. But that is one thing that when I'm like looking at a particular thing to like try and find some kind of inspiration to make a take, those minute per game numbers, those loads are are concerning to me. Let's let's maybe finish on that philosophical point, which I love. The Cavs just lost a series to the Knicks in which they had multiple All-Stars. And I think everyone agrees Cleveland's four best players are really good. They have four really good players. But leaving aside the fit a little bit, the fact that they have two twin towers and two small guards and they're working out that fit, the huge takeaway personnel-wise, depth-wise, playoff schematic, rotation, all that stuff, is we kept coming back to the idea that they didn't have any players after that. Like, the fifth best player on the Cavs might not be in a number of other teams' rotations, period. And certainly once you got past Karis LeVert, who had some good moments in the series uh, playing that fifth player, it, it became a lot harder to even find guys that like J.B. Bickerstaff. Who, 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 what cards do you play? Who do you go to? Who do you give minutes to? Do you give minutes to Jetty Osman? I'm not sure other teams would have given minutes to Jetty Osman. All that is to say, Cody, 
when the parity's like this, when when the 30th to the 75th player in the league, when those guys, that upper middle class is this important, you look at the Suns, I think they have to find a way, whether it's any series, the Nuggets, whatever, to get contributions. It could be from different players, but from the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th player. Because if you get in a situation that we just saw with Cleveland, and it's like, Torrey Craig isn't making threes, and he made 10 of 18 threes, uh, against the Clippers in the last round, so that worked beautifully. But he's not making threes. Josh Okogie's not making threes, and he's struggling. Neither of these guys really do a lot when they have the ball. Bismack Biombo is, get, let's say, he's getting cooked by Jokic or something. Damian Lee seems to go in and out of being trusted. Landry Shamit didn't get a lot of minutes. Literally at that point, um, well, I should say Cameron Payne has a history of having some good playoff minutes, and he was injured. So if you can get like something from two or three of those guys, I think you're in pretty good shape if you're Phoenix, regardless of all the other stuff that we talked about. If they can't get anything from the fifth, sixth, seventh player in multiple games, boy, I think that's going to, I mean, it's stating the obvious in a way. It's being a little reductionist, but it's, it's going to make it hard to win four times against a good team unless you can find a strategic silver bullet that really like attacks Jokic on the other end or something like that. I think, and to, to stay in philosophy land for a second, I think the really interesting aspect of the Cavs-Knicks series is, you know, you've outlined this before. I think you have an article about it. I don't know if you have a video about it, but we've talked about it at least on the podcast, the idea that championships are one with good role players, right? It's not necessarily how good the best player is, but how good are the players that are behind that best player? Not necessarily just the second player, but the third, the fourth, the fifth, et cetera, et cetera, right? I feel like I'm playing hallelujah at this point. But when you when you look at the, the Knicks, for instance, they just have guys that can go. Like, he was injured and wasn't very good for a little bit, but Quentin Grimes, he can go. Emmanuel, quickly, he doesn't score for like two straight games. All of a sudden, he's in there hitting pull-up jumpers, doing his thing, buzzing around the court. RJ Barrett, I'm like, he shouldn't be playing. All of a sudden, he's streaking to the basket, scoring. Julius Randle, all of a sudden, it's like, this guy's not our focal point anymore. Let's have someone else score a bunch of these baskets. That Knicks team just exemplifies the fact that they have just a bunch of guys that can go out there and consistently do something. Whereas, you know, the Cavaliers, a lot more than the Suns, the Cavaliers, like you said, they have their four guys and then they're really struggling to to come up with something. The Suns are a different case just because the four guys or the three guys or whatever number you want to, to pick are better than the four or the three or whatever from the Cavaliers. And I think that is really going to strain that philosophical conundrum of like, how good does your top heavy guys have to be if you just don't have the bottom end? Yeah. And let's, let's uh, finish up with applying that thought to the Nuggets. Murray, Jokic... If Michael Porter Jr. is moving well, um, that means, in theory, he can be a little bit better defensively. He's a big body. Obviously, there are concerns with Porter, Jokic, Murray all out there defensively. But Murray may be playing the best defensively in his career right now. Like That's, that's a subtle little thing where the more leaks you can plug in the Nuggets system the better everything else works around Jokic. So Porter shoots well. He provides defense. You get Aaron Gordon. You get Bruce Brown. You get Contavious Caldwell Pope, the, the man, the myth himself. And I think Jeff Green has had great minutes in these lineups as a forward or even as a small ball center. That's, I mean, 
those are seven guys, and especially Jeff Green in this rotation, the, the way he's played on both sides and getting to play next to Jokic or getting to play small ball in place of him. Those are seven guys that like you can really trust and that Mike Malone really trusts and creates lineup versatility, creates a lot of options for them. And then if you could even get some good Christian Brown minutes if it comes to it because he's a big defender. I don't know if you need him in this series. You never know when they're going to try to dust off Zeke Naji as a small ball center or Vlako Konchar. They have that depth in Denver to have a nice tight seven or eight man rotation every night. I wonder if something like that, again, I don't know what the tactical pieces look like, but if that kind of depth thing uh, is the difference, not only in this series, but in possibly multiple series where, you know, it's just, it's too tight right now to go to war without a fifth man on the court consistently or even a six or seven man rotation that you can create those lineups that don't have giant weaknesses on offense or on defense. So if you could, if you want to do this publicly now, if you were to sliding scale it here, like what percentage you feel confident, who do you think's winning this series, Ben? Oh, I, 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 this series? No, I need, I need to go in the hole and, and think about this more. We talked this through and, uh, oh, well, let me ask you, after talking it through, do you feel stronger about one team or the other? I hate I, I hate being that guy, Ben, but I feel like I think this is going to be a really interesting it's going to be a really interesting matchup. I genuinely think that both both teams have really interesting things that they're bringing to the table. And I don't know what to think about the series until I see how the other team responds to what they're going to bring to the table. I'll, I'll say this right now. This is one of the rare series in my head between two really good teams. Like both of these teams could win this series and win the Western Conference and probably regardless of who's on the other side of the bra- bracket in the finals, create some matchup problem that gives them a chance to win the finals, regardless of whether you think they're the favorite or whatever. These are two really good teams. This is a rare time and probably one of the rare instances in the last three, four, five, six playoffs in my head where I look at these two good teams and go, yeah, right now, I'm not going to be surprised if either team wins a five-game series. That That's kind of how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, I agree with that. Not to just be like a yes man over here, but yeah, that sounds great. We're, we're just we're just trying to get you through the day. Cody, um, if you want to, if you want to support this show and send Cody uh, his best wishes, check out Patreon.com/slash Thinking Basketball. Oh, we also have our live Q and A coming up this weekend. It is at Saturday. You join our Discord community; uh, they'll, they'll help you get in. There's sign up instructions for our deluxe members. That's a lot of fun. I'm sure we'll get a, a ton of questions about these upcoming series and the insanity we just watched and the NBA having three or four crazy games going on at the same time, which was really fun. But also, I don't know why we couldn't space that out. Um, you, you have a final thought that you want to leave the people with after the fake outro? It's really too bad Boston doesn't have a basketball team. I think they'd probably be interesting to talk about at some point. The uh, was that a Trey Young shout out? It's just, I'm just saying. I think that's a semi interesting series that I've kind of ignored because I don't think I was expecting it to be an interesting series. Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of those series that if the if the Celtics win in six games, then I think we spend a lot of time talking about 
what comes next, which is the Boston-Philadelphia grudge match. I think that's going to be a series we dig our teeth into heavily. Let's, okay, let's just say this. Let's just say this. I'm friends with some Boston people that are just like, especially after the Bucks losing, are a little concerned. I feel a lot more confident about Boston winning this series than I felt about the Bucks winning last night when the Heat started making some ground when Jimmy Butler was on the bench. I'll just say it that way. I, I agree. I agree. Send your best wishes to Cody. Thanks for listening to this one all the way through. And of course, and especially after last night, the craziest night in NBA history, uh, I hope you are having a great day.